Well, good morning, everybody. It really is so good to see you here. My name is Tim Park. I serve as our lead pastor. If this is your first time visiting our church, a special welcome to you. And, you know, I'm just so thankful uh, for Pastor Kevin and for our students, those who went there to Chicago and who served and they grew. And uh, I'm just so deeply thankful uh, for the heart of our youth pastor. And, uh, you know, these five students, you heard from Bella, and she was there with uh, four other of our students, uh, Michaela, uh, Ellie, Wynn, and Jacob, and they did a tremendous thing there. And they come back, and I, I trust that the impact they felt there will be lasting and everlasting here in our community. And so thank you, Pastor Kevin, for your heart. And I want to take a moment again to talk about this stage. By the way, I love uh, cityscapes. I just love everything about cityscapes, and so I just feel like I'm going to preach better just because it's around me here. And so I don't know if that's going to be the case, but uh, I hope that's the case. Uh, I just love this set. Uh, this might, I don't know, be a permanent addition to our stage. Who knows? But already countless hours have been poured into preparing for tomorrow and the rest of this week. What I'd like for us to do, if you would, if you're able to stand with me, and join me in prayer. I want to lead us, and I want to pray for our volunteers and for those who will be on campus, especially for the students this coming week. And so, if you're able to stand, wherever you are, would you bow with me? Let's go before the Lord, and let's lift up all that will take place on this campus. Father, you are a great God. You are an almighty God. And Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the countless hours that have already been poured into preparing for this important week. And we thank you, Lord, for what's about to happen this coming week. Father, I pray for all the volunteers who make this week possible. I wish I could name all of them and pray for them individually tonight or this morning. But I do ask God a special prayer for our VBS Director Michelle Ahn, would you watch over her this week as she leads a team of many, many volunteers? Give her wisdom, give her grace. Lord, give her insight into your will. Lord, we know that we prepare and we plan, but we are not in control of everything, and things will happen this week. I pray that all the volunteers will take it in stride when things don't go according to plan, knowing that you are in full control. And Father, I pray for the young lives who will be on this campus this week. Father, would you draw them to yourself, open up their hearts, help them to see Jesus in a real way, help them to follow Jesus all the days of their lives, Lord. And so we thank you in advance for what you will do through Vacation Bible School. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. We are continuing our series called Philippians, Living as Gospel Citizens, and we are in chapter 2 this morning. In a moment, we're going to display a word on the screen. It's a simple word, and it's a word that we're all familiar with. In fact, we use this word every single day 
of our lives. And probably multiple times throughout the course of the day, we say this one word. It's an important word in our society. And it's an important word for our purposes as a church whenever we open up God's word. Because our understanding of this one word often determines how we view that particular scripture and how we apply that scripture to our lives. So it's an important word. Ready? Here's the word. You. Y-O-U. It's a simple word, and in the English language, this pronoun refers to the second person. But, as you know, this one word can refer to the second person singular or the second person plural. And in English grammar, it's not always easy to tell if it's referring to a person or to a group. And that's why context is so important. You know, in other languages, in many other languages, when you see the word you in that particular language on print, you can easily tell whether it is the second person singular or plural, because many other languages differentiate those two words, the second person plural versus the second person singular. But in the English language, it's just you. And that's why it's often confusing and challenging whenever we go into the Word of God. Now, I'm told that in parts of Texas, they have their own language, all right? And they have their own usage of the word you. And, and I have a reliable source because we have a relative who went to college in Texas. And so I learned this fact that in Texas, okay, they might say y'all. So, hey, Grace, how y'all doing? Hey, Judy, how y'all doing? That y'all is singular. It's singular. And so if they want to address a group of people, right, like Valencia, Michelle, Marianne, how are all y'all doing? <laughs> it's not how y'all doing, it's how are all y'all doing? That's plural, and then y'all is just singular. Got that? All right. So in Texas, they have their own language for the word you. But think about it. That's why the, the pronoun you is often confusing. And because the word you in English can refer to a single person or to a group of people, context is critical. Context is crucial. The context helps us understand whether it's a person or a group. And the challenge for us is that we live in a society, in a culture that promotes individualism and celebrates individualism. And so what happens is, more often than not, when we come across the word you, we automatically, by default, think singular. It must just be the individual. But we don't want to make that mistake. We don't want to assume because that can ultimately lead us to a misinterpretation and a misapplication of a particular passage. And I know that we all want to be good students of God's word. So with that in mind, 
I invite you, okay, I invite all y'all to go to Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 12. Today we're going to cover many verses, all the way down to verse 30, but I'm going to begin with the first two verses, verse 12 and verse 13. And as I read these two verses, I want you to pay close attention to the second person pronoun, you. Here we go. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, there is so much to unpack in just these two verses alone. And to begin, it's critical for us to understand that every occurrence of the pronoun you in these two verses, every occurrence is in the plural. It's the second person plural. In Greek grammar, if you were to read this in the Greek New Testament, it'd be very clear because there's a different word for you, singular, and a different word for you, plural. Our English translations make it confusing because it just says you. And that's why context is so important. Paul says, my dear friends. He's writing to a group, and in particular, the church at Philippi. So, my dear friends, as you, plural, have always obeyed, so we know that Paul is addressing a group, not just one individual. But then, here's what often happens. If you study this passage, we come across the passage that says, continue to work out your salvation. For some reason, we kind of have this tendency to automatically go to the default of the singular you. Continue to work out your salvation. And we think, oh, he must be talking directly to me. I'm to work out my salvation. So it's easy for us to go back into that mindset of singular. And that's because, as Pastor Kevin mentioned, here in the Western world, we often talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. Okay? In the biblical times, it was much more of a corporate relationship with Jesus. And so that's why it's important for us to understand what Paul is saying here, that he's addressing the whole church. Now, before we go any further, I'd like to say this. Perhaps some of you have studied this passage, and in particular these two verses, verses 12 and 13. Maybe you've studied it on your own, or maybe you've studied it with a Bible study group. It's an important passage. Now, I know that every passage in the Bible is important, but there are some that are really important because how we view that passage will determine how we apply it to our lives. If you study this passage, and if you study the words, continue to work out your salvation, it's possible that the interpretation that I'm going to present to you today will differ and maybe differ significantly from maybe what you've studied or heard in the past. 
My understanding of this passage is not necessarily the most widely held view of this passage. But I will say this, that I've studied this passage for many, many years in ministry. Many, many years. And I believe the interpretation that I'm going to present to you this morning takes into account the immediate context. And remember, context is key. Everything in the Bible flows from context. So I want to begin with the first word that I read. It's the word therefore. The word therefore, it ties what Paul is about to say in this passage, 12 and on, to the preceding verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and going back to chapter 1. Paul says, therefore, in light of all that I've said previously, now he's going to take us into his discussion. In the preceding passage, Paul urged the Philippians to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He urged the Philippians to think of others as more important than themselves. He urged the Philippians to stay strong in unity. And then he gives them the perfect example of humility, right? Jesus Christ is the perfect example for us to follow. That is the context. And Paul says, in light of all that I've talked about, therefore... We can sum up the preceding verses with just two words, selfless unity. Those are the two words, selfless unity. You see, the Philippians, they partnered with Paul. They sent him a monetary gift, a selfless gift. And now Paul is urging them to continue in their obedience by working out their salvation. If you study this passage... I have a question for you that maybe you've never even asked yourself. And the question is this. What is Paul talking about when he calls the Philippians to work out their salvation? Specifically, what does the word salvation refer to? Now, one of the non-negotiable truths about the Christian faith is our understanding that we cannot earn eternal life, right? Eternal life is a free gift from God. So we know that this passage cannot mean that we are to work for salvation. And because of this non-negotiable truth, it has led some to view this passage as a working out of our eternal life by practically putting into practice our salvation, right? Because we can't earn salvation. So some view this passage as working out our salvation, meaning that we are saved. Now work it out in our lives. Show it in our lives. So that's the widely held view. But I'd like to present to you a different interpretation of this passage. An interpretation that I believe better fits the immediate Context. Remember, context is key. I don't believe that Paul is talking about the concept of eternal salvation in this passage. Now, of course, the Bible clearly talks about eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The Bible is clear about eternal life. Again, this is where our English translations pose a challenge and an obstacle for us. Did you know that the word salvation in Greek, it occurs three times in the book of Philippians. I'm going to take us back to the two other occurrences and then bring us back to chapter 2, verse 12, and make the connection. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 19 says this, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. The word deliverance here is the same Greek word as we see in chapter 2, verse 12, when Paul says, continue to work out your salvation. In Greek, it's the exact same word. And in fact, for those of you reading a paper Bible or an electronic Bible, take a look at your Bible, and you'll probably see a footnote or a subscript or a superscript after the word deliverance. And then in parentheses, you might see your editor included the word or salvation. So in the Greek, the same word for salvation is rendered deliverance in chapter 1, verse 19. I'm going to continue on. Let's go to chapter 1, verse 28. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. The word saved there could easily be the word delivered, because in the original Greek, it's the exact same word. So in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul is talking about his immediate deliverance from his circumstance. Here in chapter 1, verse 28, the same thing, that you will be saved. He's talking to you. Now, by the way, you is plural. He's saying, Philippians, as you are faithful, you as a church will be delivered from your immediate circumstance, your trial, your difficulty. And so the word saved is interchangeable with the word delivered. Lord, save me from this circumstance. Lord, deliver me from this circumstance. So, when we come back to our passage in, second, in the second chapter, in verse 12, we read the words, continue to work out your salvation. If we pull that verse out and just read it on its own without the context, it's easy for us to say, oh, wow, the Bible says, I, Tim, I have to work out my salvation. When in fact, the Bible is urging the church collectively to be obedient in the midst of their circumstances so that God will deliver them. In other words, so that God will make them victorious. That doesn't mean that God's going to spare us from trials. Our church in our 56 years of existence, we have faced many trials, many trials. 
And some of these trials have been painful and difficult and heartbreaking. When Paul wrote to the Philippian church, they were facing difficult and painful trials. And he was reminding them to be obedient as a church. And as you are obedient, God will deliver you from that circumstance. So for E-Free Church here in Diamond Bar, over the 56 years, here's what's happened. When a trial comes our way, we stay true to the mission of the church, to know Jesus and make him known. We are true to the word of God. We love God and we love people. And in the midst of all the challenges, through the thick and the thin, through all the highs and lows, if we are faithful to God and to his word, he will make us victorious. That is Paul's encouragement to the Philippian church. Continue to work out your deliverance, your salvation, with fear and trembling, and see what God will do. In essence, Paul's saying, continue to stand in selfless unity. And here's what he says in verses 14 through 18. He says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now in verse 14, Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. The word grumbling is a descriptive word. And the reason why it's a descriptive word is it's an onomatopoeia. You know what an onomatopoeia is? Here's the official definition of an onomatopoeia. It's the naming of a thing or action by a vocal imitation of the sound associated with it. In other words, in layman's terms, the word resembles its sound. So the word buzz is its sound. The word hiss is the sound. So that's why it's an onomatopoeia. The word resembles its sound. So the word grumbling in English is an onomatopoeia. Rumble. Right? When you grumble. You sound like that. And in the Greek, by the way, in Greek, when you put two Gs together, it makes the sound NG, ng. So it's like, gongusmas. Gongusmas. So in both English and Greek, the word is an onomatopoeia. Grumble. Gongusmas. Here's the thing about grumbling. Grumbling is not a loud, angry outburst. Instead, grumbling is this undertone of murmuring, 
and complaining. And grumbling usually happens in circles where others will agree with you. And it goes something like this. Ah, I can't believe our church is no longer doing that. Or I can't believe our church is doing that now. And when we grumble like that, in circles where others will agree, they'll say, yeah, I can't believe that either. And here's what happens with grumbling. When we grumble in circles, it starts to spread like wildfire. So someone will take that step, yeah, and go to another circle. Yeah, did you hear that we're starting to do that now? Oh, I can't believe that. One commentator describes grumbling this way. It's the low, threatening, discontented, muttering of a mob who distrust their leaders and are on the verge of an uprising. Wow. And that's exactly what happened to Moses. When the Israelites rebelled against his leadership, I can't believe Moses led us out here to this desert and all we eat is stale bread. Yeah, I can't believe that either. And that's why Paul, here in this passage, he refers back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, to that very scene when Moses spoke about the disobedient people of God. When Paul writes in verse 15 about the warped and crooked generation, he is referring to the disobedient people of God in the Old Testament who claim to know God, but their complaining spirit said otherwise. Church, a complaining spirit does not suit a child of God. One day, a person walked into a department store. When this person walked in, all of a sudden, this person saw confetti drop from the ceiling. And then there was a stage, and then a band on the stage started playing a celebratory music, sound. It was festive. And then the store manager ran up to this person and congratulated the person and handed the person this huge check for $1,000. You see, this person was the millionth customer of this department store. And so all the cameras from the television stations, they focused on this person. Uh, reporters surrounded this person and started interviewing this person. Tell me, so what brought you to the store today? And the person paused for a moment, hesitant. This person said sheepishly, well, I was on my way to the complaint desk. <laughs> I bet that thousand dollars <laughs> made that person change their mind. 
I don't know. Maybe churches today should start passing out money at the, de- at the front door. What do you think? <laughs> That'd be a terrible idea. It would probably turn away some complaints, but it'd be a terrible idea. How do we become blameless and pure? Right? Because the verse right there tells us. It talks about being blameless and pure. How do we shine like stars in the night? Right? Because it tells us right there. You'll, you'll shine like stars in the night. The answer is very clear. It is very direct. In verse 14, Paul gives us the answer. If you want to be blameless, if you want to be pure, if you want to shine like stars in the night, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, in the Greek, the word everything means, ready? Everything. The word everything means everything. That means do everything without grumbling or complaining. And here's what happens when we don't grumble. Here's what happens when we don't complain. Selfless unity happens. When we don't grumble, when we don't complain, selfless unity is shared. And when we exercise selfless unity, the beauty is we aren't preoccupied with making sure that our individual star shines the brightest. When we are not concerned about the individual star, selfless unity can take place. You see, Paul was not concerned that his star was the brightest in the sky. Paul knew his place. He knew his place in the grand scheme of things. That's why he used the phrase, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering, that phrase, even even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, that phrase means, even if I am to die a martyr for my faith, it's okay. I will do so. He would rejoice. One commentator says this about Paul's attitude. Living for the glory of God means knowing you are expendable and being ready to die if necessary to accomplish God's ends. Wow. Living for the glory of God means that we are expendable. Now, That's not the usual motivational pep talk you'd like to hear, right? You're expendable. You're expendable. I'm expendable. We usually like to hear, you are irreplaceable. What will we do without you? That's what we want to hear. That's what makes us feel good. How can we ever replace you? No one can fill your shoes. That's what we like to hear. And yet Paul knew, in the grand scheme of things, he was expendable. Part of our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ is knowing our place. The gospel is not about us. 
is about Jesus Christ. And our goal is to be faithful stewards, not to make sure that my star is shining the brightest. We belong to a team. And no matter what part we play on the team, we all affect the whole. And how one person's star shines, so goes the whole. In the remaining verses, Paul talks about two of his teammates, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Let's read about Timothy, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I can or as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Timothy was Paul's spiritual son. Timothy was raised by his mother Eunice and by his grandmother Lois. It's possible that Timothy's father died when Timothy was young, which is why Paul became his spiritual father. Paul tells us three things about Timothy that should speak to our hearts. First of all, he says about Timothy, he's my kindred spirit. He says, I have no one else like him. Timothy was Paul's kindred spirit. Church, if you can find one or two persons in your life, maybe a handful at most, one or two persons who will be with you through thick and thin, you are blessed. If you can find a kindred spirit, you are truly blessed. If you can find one or two persons, just a handful, who, if you confide in that person and say anything to that person, you can trust that that person will never betray you. If you can find someone like that, you are blessed. Because the reality is, Let's face it, many relationships in life, they come attached with agendas, don't they? A lot of relationships have agendas. But if you can find somebody, just one or two, three, just a handful at most, who will say, I entrust my life to this person. Please know that that was Timothy to Paul. Paul said of Timothy, he is my kindred spirit. I have no one else like him. Secondly, Paul says about Timothy, he has a genuine concern for others. You see, Timothy was not a self-promoter. He was too busy promoting other people. 
He was always looking out for the interests of others. And then third, he says about Timothy, here's a man of proven character. And that's why Paul put Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus. Not because, hey, Timothy, give it a shot. See how it works out. No, he put him in charge of this church because he would entrust only the best. Proven character. Kindred spirit, concern for others, and proven character. That was Timothy. How about Epaphroditus? Let's continue on. Starting in verse 25. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Epaphroditus played a critical role in the New Testament, even though we don't know a whole lot about him. He brought the gift from the Philippians to Paul while he was imprisoned. When he returned, he took back the original manuscript of the letter to the Philippian church. So really, without Epaphroditus, we wouldn't have this sermon series because we wouldn't have the Philippian letter. So Epaphroditus played a critical role in the New Testament church. And Paul shares three things about Epaphroditus. He was devoted, he was faithful, and he was self-sacrificing. Devoted, faithful, self-sacrificing. So, in Timothy, Paul had a kindred spirit. In Timothy, Paul knew that Timothy always put the needs of others before himself. In Timothy, he had a proven man, someone with a proven character. In Epaphroditus, Paul had a devoted, faithful, self-sacrificing partner. Did you notice in that list what was missing? What was missing was talent, eloquence, and sharpness. Sure, those things are helpful in ministry, to be talented, eloquent, sharp. Those are nice, helpful at times, but they can never replace character. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they serve as a challenge for us today. And here's a question we ought to ask ourselves. If Scripture was being written today about our church, would it say this? Hold the men and women of Ephraim Church in high regard. Because these men and women have proven character. They're concerned for the well-being of others. They're devoted 
faithful, and self-sacrificing. Now, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, Tim, uh, I want to be all those things. But the reality is some days I complain a lot. Okay, Tim, the reality is every day I complain a lot. If you're sitting there thinking, I want to be all those things, but you know, I often lose my patience. Tim, I want to be all those things, but you know, sometimes I lack faith. If you're sitting there thinking those things, well, welcome to the club. <laughs> you're in good company. But this week, here's our assignment, because we love to make this as practical as possible every week, right? So I kind of give you a new assignment every week. So this week, maybe some of you might be up to this challenge, and that's this. This is a hard challenge, so uh, I'm going to give you that disclaimer already. This is going to be very hard. But maybe one day this week, commit that entire day, 24 hours, to not allowing a single word of complaint to come out of your mouth. Wouldn't that be quite a feat? Maybe, maybe there are some of you who will be up to that challenge. In fact, I would be blown away if some of you at the end of this week were to email me, Tim, I took on this daunting task and God gave me the strength and I did not say a complaining word all day long. I mean, that would be amazing. I'd be blown away by that if someone were to email me that. Now, you know, in life, like sometimes people, like, let's say, for example, if people want to eat less meat, they'll often have what's called meatless Mondays. Okay, so throughout the rest of the week, they eat meat, but on Monday, it's just non-meat. Okay, meatless Monday. So maybe take a day this week, any day this week, and say, today, no complaining. Okay, after first service, one person who was in first service texted me and said, yeah, no whining Wednesdays. I love that. No whining Wednesdays. Okay, so just choose a day if you're up to this challenge this week and say, today, for these 24 hours, I will not utter a single word of complaint. If that means you have to lock yourself in your room, so be it, all right? If you don't, have to, if you don't come out for 24 hours, so be it. But wouldn't that be amazing? Maybe, maybe one of you might be up to that challenge. It's a, it's a huge challenge. But I would love to hear some success stories. You know why? It is possible. You know why? Because Paul says, here's how you're to be blameless and pure. Do everything without grumbling. It is possible. It is possible. Amen. It is possible. It is possible. If we put our minds to it we submit ourselves to the Spirit. This week, when you wake up every morning, say to yourself, today, I'm going to exercise Christ-centered obedience. That's my encouragement. Would you bow with me? Oh, Father, we covered many verses today. I just pray that your word has been impressed on our hearts. God, that my words will have not gotten in the way of your word. 
Father, help us to wake up every morning this week with an attitude that says, I will exercise Christ-centered obedience. As we do so, we know that we will walk blamelessly. We will walk in purity. Our stars will shine in the darkness of the night. Help us to exercise selfless unity as a church, to think of others above ourselves. And thank you for the perfect example of humility in Jesus Christ. Help us to be like him today and every day. We pray in his name. Amen.